0: Welcome back, everyone. We have an exciting week ahead of us. It's earnings season. It's officially started. We have the busy week where all these great companies give us a report card of how things are going. That's all earnings season is. We get to see how things are going compared to what we expect. If companies beat their earnings and they're doing better than expected, that's a good thing. Typically, the stock will do better. If they have disappointing earnings, especially with prices being where they're at, well, that could mean trouble for these companies. So this earnings season is important. What's going on with these companies and their fundamental developments are very important. We have a couple big companies reporting this week. We have Netflix and Tesla both charging for this week. They're two of the first big important companies to report earnings, but they're not the only ones. We also have a whole list of here of the most anticipated earnings this week. We have Procter & Gamble reporting earnings Tuesday before market open. We have Netflix, reporting earnings Tuesday market after close. And I have personally a large amount invested in Netflix. So I'm looking at that one. I have a lot to say about it. We have at and This is a company that I followed for years. I, at one point in my investing history, owned at and I even managed to eke out a profit in it. But at and has been struggling. I have some thoughts on this company. We'll be looking at their upcoming earnings. And then after at and market close on Wednesday, we have probably the most anticipated earnings of the week, which is Tesla. The debate goes on. Is Tesla a car company? Is Tesla a tech company? I've been on the side where I think it's a car company. I think it leans towards that way but I wanna look at the data, I wanna look at the numbers, I wanna look at what the expectations are for Tesla this week. Then moving on to Thursday, before market open, we have Union Pacific. I'm invested in this company and I have a very specific story for this stock. What I think needs to have happen for Union Pacific to give really good returns. We're gonna be looking Thursday after market close at Intel. We know this is a big one passed around the value investing sphere. So I'll be giving some thoughts on this one as well as their earnings predictions. And then we have Visa. This is one that I really like. I think Visa is a top tier compounding machine. It's a great company. I own the counterpart MasterCard, but Visa is one that I also think is is amazing. So I'll be giving my predictions on Visas and I'll throw in MasterCard's earnings as well going into Thursday. Then finally, on Friday before market open, we have American Express. We'll be looking at that one as well. Eight companies in total is what I'll be reviewing. This is a very busy week, and we're gonna see a lot of fireworks as earnings season plays out. Expectations are very high. The market has been racing up. These companies need to perform to keep their valuations where they're at. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump in. Now let's go ahead and start off. We're gonna kick things off Tuesday market opening with Procter & Gamble, the consumer staple king. They make products like this. This is a picture of just some of them. This isn't even all of the products they make. It's a lot of these cleaning products, chemicals, you know, when you wanna clean your kitchen floors, that type of thing, and it's extremely diversified. So this is a company where they sell a lot of little things. And this type of company is exactly the type of company that, that Terry Smith likes. So you'll see it in Terry Smith's portfolio. He considers these very defensive, diversified brand franchise companies as really good investments. Now, I've gone ahead and I've made slides for each company that show you the projected earnings and the revenue for this upcoming quarter. For example, with Procter & Gamble here, we have earnings per share expectations for Q4 of last year of $1.70 which would be an increase of 6.88%. So a nice increase in earnings per share. And then they're expecting revenue of 21.5 billion, which is only a 3.48% increase. So this shows what I think is a a pretty mature company. You're getting three to 4% revenue growth, six to 7% earnings per share growth. They'll pay out a little bit of a dividend. So you might get like an eight to 9% return if they hit their earnings per share estimate. When I look at Procter & Gamble, I actually think this is a great company. It's a defensive one. It's steady. It's at a a reasonable valuation. It trades at a 4% free cash flow yield. So there's not a ton baked into the price here. The PE ratio is at a 23, which I think might actually be a little bit low for a company this diversified, Uh, that has this predictable of earnings. When we look at the financials of it, it also looks really good. The tool that we're using here is Qualtrum. This is included as part of the Patreon. We look at the revenue, and this is the issue I have with this type of company. Terry Smith really loves these type of companies, and I agree with him that these are really defensive companies. Consumer staples are very good bets for long-term compounding machines. The issue is they're not growing quite fast enough. So I like looking at consumer staples that are growing a bit faster. I consider Microsoft a consumer staple. I consider Intuit a consumer staple. I consider Costco a consumer staple. All of those companies are growing much faster than Procter & Gamble, and they're all very defensive as well. The free cash flow is also pretty stagnant over the past decade. You can see that in 2009, it was 13 billion. Now it's 13.7 billion. So you're getting virtually no growth in free cash flow. We look at the free cash flow per share. You're getting a slight amount of growth here, but it's not strong. It's around three to 5%. I don't find this as an attractive situation to invest in. The company is simply growing too slowly. So I'm not gonna be investing in Procter & Gamble, but I do believe that this company will be earnings. I think that's going to happen this quarter. I'd be very surprised if they don't beat their earnings per share estimate and their revenue. Now, I could be wrong, so don't bet on this, but from what I can see, the consumer is very strong. They're spending on lots of small products like this. Unless Procter & Gamble is losing a lot of market share from competitors, I believe the overall market is growing. I believe the company has pricing power and consumers are very strong right now. So I'd be very surprised if they came in under their earnings per share estimate. Now moving on from Procter and Gamble, Tuesday after market close we have Netflix. This is a company that I do have a large investment in. If we go over to the Story Fund, this is my secondary portfolio. It has just a handful of high growth tech companies, one of them being Netflix. And I currently have a total value of $50,700 in this company with 4,800 of that being gains. Now there's a lot going on with Netflix. So let's go ahead and just take a look at some of the things going on with it. First of all, we can look at the earnings per share estimate here. The average analyst expects Netflix to earn $2.20, which is an increase of 1,760% from a year ago. Now, I'd love to just look at that and say that Netflix is growing their earnings per share by 1700%. But obviously, something is a little bit off or a little bit uneven with that number. So, when I see these outlandishly huge earnings per share growth, I like to go back another year and look at it compared to just two years ago. When you do that, it looks quite different. It's only up 65%. From 2022 so let's go ahead and take a look at what this looks like visualized on the earnings per share chart now I have brought up Netflix here because it's Netflix and I think it's appropriate let's go ahead and move into dark mode it just makes sense Netflix is a nighttime company uh, let's go ahead and move into dark mode and look at the earnings per share and we can see the issue right here if we switch into quarterly we can see the earnings per share the previous quarter of the previous year was 12 cents And as you can see, it was unusually low. So Netflix had some extra expense or tax expense or something go on to cause this earnings per share to be much lower than their normal EPS. And because of that, it's artificially boosting the year over year gain. This is the reason why you wanna open up the historical charts. You wanna get context to what these earnings per share year over year gains are. Now, again, when we go back two years, when we go back one, two, three, four, it was $1.33. So, It's no longer going down, it's going up. And I would say that this is still a pretty good earnings per share gain over a two-year period. They're gaining 65% EPS over two years. And Netflix is expected to gain around that cadence for the next couple of years, around 30 to 35% earnings per share gains per year. The revenue, which I also think is very important. In fact, I would argue that for Netflix, the revenue gain is probably more important than the earnings per share gain because the story of Netflix has been a slowdown a halting, the competitors raced into to streaming, they slowed down Netflix's gains, and they're re-accelerating their revenue back to double digits, which is an incredibly important part of this story. That would bring the revenue to 8.71 billion, which is a 10.96% increase over the previous year. So that is a big increase, 10.96% for Netflix, which was supposed to be a no growth company. And this is what investors are getting behind. This is the reason that Netflix's valuation traded back up to such a high P.E. ratio. Remember when it dropped down to around a 15 P.E.? It was around a 14 to 15 Ford P.E.? That was when it was all doom and gloom. Netflix lost subscribers, the revenue slowed down, everybody became very bearish, and the stock got re-rated, which means that the valuation got chopped in half. Now the valuation has doubled again because investors are seeing that they re-accelerated growth, they're gaining subscribers, and it doesn't look like things were so bad as investors were treating it. So we have an expanding of a multiple back into the premium territory of the 34 PE. And this brings up other challenges for Netflix. For example, we have this from the Wall Street Journal here. Let's go ahead and take a look at this article. Netflix has its own tough act to follow. In this article, the Wall Street Journal highlights the conundrum of having this high rating going into earnings. To be Netflix these days is to occupy the strange dichotomy of being a company that has won the war but still has plenty of battles to fight. Now this is something that I've argued for for years, I've even come out with videos saying Netflix has won, I'm referring to the streaming wars. They won the streaming wars years ago, but to the victor might have gone too many spoils. Netflix shares have jumped 40% since the company's strong 3rd quarter results 3 months ago, which also includes the announcement of price bumps on certain Netflix streaming plans. That has some on Wall Street worried that even good results won't prove good enough this time. is the key line for Netflix going into earnings season. Investors are concerned that the bar is so high for Netflix. They're expecting so much. Everything is so high of an expectation that if Netflix has any disappointment in the earnings results, stock is going to drop. The stock will drop 10 to 15%. So this is the conundrum with Netflix right now. Citigroup analyst Jason Bazinet downgraded the stock to a neutral rating on January 9th across 2024 and 2025. The street has lofty expectations for Netflix," he wrote. Now, we can take a look at these lofty expectations. Analysts estimate that Netflix added 8.8 million paying subscribers in the fourth quarter. And this comes after another quarter before it, where they gained 9 million subscribers. So Netflix said in their last quarterly report, we gained around 9 million and we expect around the same amount next quarter. And that's what the analysts are tying in. But they also said that it could be off by a few million. So Netflix could come in with 7 million or 10 million. We don't know. They're expecting 8.8 million. If Netflix comes in with 6 million, 7 million, 8 million, will that be enough? Maybe not. The stock will probably sell off if that's the case. That would equate to more than 17.5 million additions in a six-month period, which Netflix hasn't done since the first half of 2020 with the onset of the pandemic. So Netflix is growing so fast and has such high growth expectations that the last Comparable time was during the COVID pandemic in 2020. That was a time period of unusual growth, and we're expecting the same unusual growth now. Longer term, both account sharing and advertising are expected to revive Netflix revenue even if subscriber growth stalls. Analysts expect Netflix revenue to grow 14% this year and 11% next year, compared with 6% growth estimated for 2023. So Netflix is now expected to over double their revenue growth year over year. These are very lofty expectations for the company. So overall, the issue with Netflix is that the valuation and the multiple has risen up to meet these lofty expectations. Investors are excited about the future, about the momentum, about all the great things that are happening with Netflix stock, and they're now paying up to buy the company to match that excitement. But that does create this scenario where you have a bit more downside. When Netflix was trading at a 15 PE, it was being priced like your average company just any company in the S&P 500, even cheaper. Netflix was really just thrown out. Investors completely underpriced it. And now there's a chance they could be overpricing it a little. When I look at this overall, am I going to sell out of Netflix for fear of it trading down after earnings? No, I'm not. Because I look at things very long term. Right now, we have to separate short shelf life stuff from long shelf life stuff. Short shelf life, are the current multiples of the company being a little bit stretched and expectations this quarter being a little high. That is short shelf life stuff. Next quarter, will be moving on. They'll either miss a little bit or hit. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that long term, the next five to 10 years, Netflix has way more subscribers than they do today. They continue their global dominance. They march towards 500 million subscribers. They generate 10 plus billion dollars of free cash flow per year, and they do massive amounts of buybacks. All of that type of stuff developing over a longer time period will cause this stock to gain in value. So when I look at this, Netflix in the short term is very risky. Lofty valuation, high expectations, that's been known to cause sell-offs if they have any disappointment, which is a real possibility. Long term, I'm still incredibly bullish on the company as I think that the long term expectations are still not fully priced in. So, I look at this company and I see a lot of positive things moving forward. Revenue momentum, I see free cash flow going to all time highs. The next quarter, free cash flow is going to be absurdly high compared to this. And then I think they're even going to have good free cash flow in 2024. When I look at the margins of the company, they're also expanding over time. Even as Netflix has increased their budget over the past decade, their operating margins continue to climb. So currently, even though there's a high degree of uncertainty in the short term, Netflix, I believe, still has a very predictable long-term trajectory. I'm going to hold it and chill. Now we move on to Wednesday before market open and we have AT&T. Let's go ahead and take a look at this one. The expectations for AT&T this quarter are earnings per share of 56 cents, which is a decline of 8.5%, and revenue of $31.42 billion. That's so much money. This company has so much revenue. Unfortunately, that's an increase of only 0.26%. So they're predicting a decline in earnings per share year over year and completely flat revenue. That's actually revenue decline if you're factoring in real revenue due to inflation because inflation has happened year over year. So they're actually earning a little bit less revenue if you want to factor that in. But regardless, if we look at AT&T, I have a couple thoughts about this company. The reason I want to point this one out is because I feel like a lot of investors are either trapped into this company because of the value of it or they're trapped into it because of the dividend of it. That is two things that attracts people to this company, which I believe is not a great company to invest in. Let's go ahead and take a look at the valuation and at the dividend. Let's first start with the valuation. at and has a ridiculously low valuation of a Ford PE of 6.7. That is such a low valuation that the commodity multiple, which is The multiple a company trades at, if it's neither growing nor destroying value, is somewhere around 12. That's around the commodity multiple. That means a company really has no expectations. It's just at a steady state multiple. 6.7 means that the company's priced to destroy wealth. It's priced as if it's in decline. It's priced as if it's a huge opportunity cost. So this thing is priced so low that investors are expecting it to be a bad bet. That's how low the multiple is. When we look at the dividend of the company, the dividend yield is currently 6.66%. It's almost uh, you know, 7% dividend, very high yield that you're getting for the company. So a novice investor might come in to the stock market and they say, I want to follow Buffett which he invests in companies when no one else wants to, right? We want to invest when everyone else is fearful. Nobody wants to buy AT&T. That's why the multiple is at 6.7. And we want to invest in companies that pay a very high yield. You're getting a high dividend on them, right? Especially if you're a dividend investor. So you want to get that juicy 6.7% dividend yield. And both of these are the wrong takeaways for the company. Investors like Warren Buffett made the majority of their gains investing in companies that had incredibly high qualities, incredibly good qualities. They had high returns on tangible assets, high returns on capital employed. They have very good brand value, they have pricing power, and they have a deeply entrenched moat. AT&T has none of these intrinsic value drivers. So when we look at the company, the revenue is not growing at all. They've sold off some stuff like Warner Media, which has caused their revenue to go down, but even outside of that, the revenue isn't growing. We look at the cash flow of the company. It generates a lot of cash flow, but it hasn't grown in over 15 years. So you have flat free cash flows, you have flat revenue, you have no growth with this company, you have earnings that are also completely stagnant for decades. So this is, it's like buying a bond, but there's also risk with it because of the amount of debt that they have. This company has an enormous amount of debt, and the interest payments on this debt eat into their profitability. The higher the interest rates go, the worse it is for AT&T. They can't afford to do that much in way of uh, share buybacks, so they can't increase value that way. So they have to rely on paying the dividend, but because their financials have been so poor recently, they cut the dividend by about 40%, about 50%. You can see it cut in half right there. This isn't a good company. It's not a good investment. Uh, if you're invested in this company, you're hoping for a value trap to suddenly become a good company. And history shows that that rarely happens. It can happen, but it just happens very rarely. It's not a bet that I think is worth taking. So when I look at AT AT&T, we can look at this earnings estimates and this revenue as a guide of what to expect for the future. More flat quarters, more up and down earnings per share, overall a stagnant, large, mostly saturated company, That has very little growth ahead if they could turn the story around and somehow come out with a new product or technology that spurs growth forward that would change the story but doing so is betting against all the historical past of the company which in my experience is a bad bet to do investors like warren buffett find companies that are already on a good path they're already doing really well and they invest in those companies and join the ride as they continue to compound Lots of other investors dive into value traps. They get caught up into companies like AT&T and they burn a lot of capital and opportunity cost when they could be investing in better bets. So for me personally, I think there's better opportunities than AT&T. Now moving on, after market close on Wednesday, we have Tesla, the most anticipated earnings report of the week. Tesla is always a highly debated stock. There's many opinions on this one. I still am on the debate of whether or not Tesla is an automaker, a car company, or a tech company. And I know many people feel that that's crazy to even debate that. Look at all Tesla does with batteries and insurance and their full self-driving and all of that. But the numbers don't lie. For me, that continues to be the same debate. And I wanna show examples of this. Now let's go ahead and take a look at the earnings estimates for Tesla. We have the EPS estimate of 0.74 cents per share, which is a decline of 38%. The revenue of 25.76 billion, which is an increase of... Almost 6%. So we have a decline in earnings per share and small increase in revenue. And I say small for Tesla. For most companies, that's a decent increase. For Tesla, that's a little shy, 6%. Let's go ahead and take a look at what, what things were like last quarter after they reported. If we rewind back to October 18th of 2023, the Wall Street Journal has an article highlighting what was going on at this time period. So, we're going to just do a little blast from the past here. Chief executive Elon Musk warned Wednesday that Tesla would face enormous challenges scaling up factory production for its long delayed Cybertruck, signaling profits could remain under pressure in the coming quarter. So, that must be where the decline in EPS came from. The electric car maker reported a 44% decline in the third quarter of net income, a steeper drop than Wall Street expected, as price cuts from the company's lineup continued to take a toll on the bottom line. So Tesla's done a lot of price cuts over the past year, and that's dropped their earnings per share, even though they're gaining more in revenue. On Tesla's earnings call, Musk struck a cautious tone about the year ahead, expressing concerns about the broader economy, including higher interest rates and their impact on consumers. Now I've said before that I don't invest in car companies. I don't like the industry, the boom and bust nature, the low returns on capital, and the low operating margins. I don't like the fact that it's a very competitive industry with lots of well-capitalized competitors. I also don't like the fact that the product requires consumer financing, which becomes more expensive during times of higher interest rates. So I've said before many times that I don't invest in car companies. And that has caused a lot of Tesla investors to point out to me that Tesla is not a car company because they have the full self driving tech. They have cameras in it. They have software, subscriptions. They have insurance, right? They have the battery network. They have all of this type of stuff. They have the advanced manufacturing. All of this makes them not a car company. But to me, I'm still not convinced. I'm still not fully believing that Tesla is far more than a car company. Let's go ahead and take a look at an example here. Apple isn't just a phone company, they're a tech company, and we can look at the financials to determine what a tech company looks like. The most important chart I believe illustrating this point is the operating margins of the business. The operating margins of a tech company, even a hardware tech company, should be at 25 to 30 percent, or at least above that, Most tech companies have much higher operating margins, but even ones like Apple that sell enormous amounts of hard goods, devices, still have 25 to 30% operating margins. And we can see that Apple has kept these operating margins around 30% for the past couple of years. So that is the operating margin of a hardware tech company. Now, if we compare this to Tesla, we can see what their operating margins look like. We open it up and there was a time period where this looked pretty convincing. Tesla's sales were exploding, their car prices were going up, and the operating margins were going up in lockstep, quarter after quarter, higher and higher operating margins. And this looked like it was becoming a tech company, elevated from the realm of a car company. Right here in this category is where you have tech company-like operating margins. And Tesla was achieving that in 2021 and very early 2022. Due to their huge price increases, Selling lots of cars, their operating leverage, everything was coming together. But then look what quickly happened. Interest rates went up and subsequently, Tesla has lowered prices on all of their vehicles. Their operating margins have been slashed in half. If we look at this over the past five years, we can see this even clearer. 2021, 2022, operating margins of 19%. Then last quarter, the operating margins were 7.55%. Tesla's margins are going down closer to the average of a car company. So the reason that I'm not currently invested in Tesla is because it not only has a high valuation, there's a lot of expectations in it, but for me personally, I'm just not confident in its ability to break out from the metrics, from the operating metrics of the car industry. It might do it in the future and I'll be happily proved wrong. I want Tesla to be successful. I have no problems with this company doing well. But for me, it's not one that I'm confident in, so I'm staying out of it. Now we move on to the rail company Union Pacific, which is reporting earnings Thursday before market open. I have a smaller holding in Union Pacific, but it's one of my positions in my main portfolio, so I am bullish on this company. The analyst estimates are little... Well, they're negative this quarter. They're expecting earnings to go down and revenue to go down. The earnings per share should drop around 3.78% and the revenue should drop around 2%. Now there's a specific story with Union Pacific and it's unlike any other company I own. This company's not growing its top line growth. It's the only company in my portfolio that does not have top line growth. When I look at this longer term, it still does not have much top line growth. We go back to 2012, And it has around the same amount of revenue as they do today. So, very little growth overall. I don't consider this a growth company. Union Pacific Story is all about margins, about efficiency, about becoming a more efficient railroad like Canadian Pacific. If Union Pacific's operating metrics become closer and closer in efficiency to Canadian Pacific, the stock will increase in price. It will move upwards because the big thing holding this one down right now is its operating metrics. They are the worst ran railway of any of them, any of the class one. Now there's a new CEO, Jim Vena, that joined and he's trying to turn things around. He's trying to increase the operating metrics. So we'll see how he does. I am giving this company one year to make progress on this goal. If they don't increase their operating metrics, notably by the end of 2024, I'm moving out of this company. Because if they don't have the increasing operating metrics, I don't believe they're going to have substantial revenue growth. So the entire story is reliant on the operating metrics increasing, but I'm not going to give them forever with this company. By the end of 2024, I'll determine the progress and I'll make a decision whether or not to hold this company. Now we move on to Intel, which is reporting earnings Thursday after market close. Let's go ahead and take a look at the earnings estimates by the analysts. The average analyst estimate for Intel's EPS is 46 cents, which is a 168% gain over the previous year's quarter. Now, of course, that seemed a little on the high side for a company like Intel. That seems like an anomaly. So I tried to average it out or at least normalize it a bit by going back even a year further and seeing how the earnings per share compares to two years ago. Compared to two years ago, it's not an increase of 168%, it's a decrease of 59%. So that's from 2022 on the same quarter. To look at this visualize, we can bring up the earnings per share chart here and we can zoom in over the past 10 years to make this clear. We have the earnings per share right here, the negative quarter that they're comparing to. If we go back one, two, three, four, we can see that it was $1.13. So we're going from $1.13 two years ago to 46 cents this year. Now on a longer timetable, we know that Intel ran into a lot of trouble and they're trying to get back on track. So this is a recovery play. We wanna see Intel steadily grow earnings, which is exactly what they're doing. 46 cents is an increase over the past year. The story of the recovery is on track. I believe Intel's gonna beat earnings. I think they will. We've seen AMD, we've seen Nvidia. These companies are going nuts right now. And Intel should gain from the secular trends in this industry. If they don't, if they don't beat earnings, if they don't do well this quarter, then that's a very tough situation to be in when their pairs are doing so incredibly well. So my prediction is that Intel beats earnings, but we'll see. Now, after Intel, we have Visa reporting earnings Thursday after market close as well. Visa, I believe, is one of the best companies in the world. I own the counterpart MasterCard. There's a few differences. MasterCard has a bit more value-add services. MasterCard has a bit more growth internationally. But Visa has a huge market share in the U.S. And both of them equate to a very powerful duopoly. Now, the earnings estimates from the analysts are that Visa is going to earn $2.31 in EPS, which is a 7.3% increase year over year. The revenue is going to be 8.55 billion, which is a 7.69% increase year over year. These are both very strong numbers. It shows that the company grows and grows and grows. On the full year, Visa should grow 12 to 14%. I think it's going to be a very good growth year for Visa in 2023. So this is wrapping up a compounder once again growing every single year. This is what I believe constitutes a great company at not too demanding of a valuation. And I believe Visa will beat their earnings. I think they're gonna beat it by a sizable amount. Based on consumer spending and what I see, When I visit Costco's, when I go out, there's people spending a lot of money. Consumers are really excited about spending money. The economy's been good. Inflation might come down a little bit, which hurts Visa. But overall, I think the strong spending trends, the strong consumer, I think is going to lift this stock further. So I have very high expectations for Visa. And then finally, Friday before market open, we have another credit card company, but it's a bit more, which is American Express. When we look at American Express, there are some notable differences between this company and Visa and MasterCard. And there's a reason I have a small preference for Visa and MasterCard over American Express. American Express tries to do a lot more than their digital network. They've tried creating an entire ecosystem of finances and wrapping in the top spending Americans into that ecosystem. Normally, I like ecosystems. I like them in Apple, I like them in Microsoft or different companies. But in the digital payment network, I believe the real value is how vast and how large their payment network is, which Visa and MasterCard have the largest market share. So I have a preference over the large market share than I do over the ecosystem. Now looking at the analyst estimates for this quarter, American Express is supposed to report $2.65, which is a 27% increase over the previous year. That's a huge increase. I bet there's a little bit of lumpiness in the earnings per share. The revenue is going to be a 12.51% increase. So we're expecting a big recovery, a big increase in American Express. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of these numbers. Let's bring up American Express and look at the earnings per share chart to give it context. Looking at a singular quarter sometimes can be a bit misleading if you don't have proper context. And when we look at this, we can see the issue right here. If we go back one, two, three, four, it was $2.07. So next quarter, they're expecting $2.65, which is that 30% increase. That's really strong. But if we look at this, we notice this was an unusually low quarter. It was the lowest of the previous two years. So it's a good increase. But when we normalize it, and we go back a little bit further, one, two, three, four, it was actually higher two years ago than one year ago. So their earnings per share is growing, and I think it's growing steadily, but not quite as fast as this quarter would imply. So the earnings per share is growing, and the revenue is growing quite nicely as well. We're expecting, I believe, $15.95 billion in revenue. We zoom in over the past 10 years, we go up to 15.34 in the previous quarter. So we're expecting 12% revenue growth, which is really strong. American Express is a great company that's expected to have very strong growth. And like Visa, with all the spending that consumers are doing, I believe this company will be annual assessments. I'd be surprised if they didn't. So there you have all eight companies. My expectations for them, we have this busy week ahead. If you like this type of content, make sure you subscribe to the channel because I'll be doing follow-ups on many of these earnings reports after they happen. So I hope you enjoyed, see you in the next one.